Would you please open your Bibles to Philippians? Philippians chapter 1. As we continue our overview of Philippians, the first sermon was an overview related to the church structure, elders, deacons, membership. The second was the church as God's family, and today you're going to be looking at the church as God's army, His outpost in heaven. So, if you can, would you stand, please? Philippians chapter 1, starting verse 27. Here's the word of the Lord. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightening anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. You may be seated. Let us pray once again. Lord, we, we truly pray because we know how needy we are. We need your help. Please help me to be faithful. Help me to be clear. I pray that my heart and my mouth would be in a leash, in a chain connected to your word. And I pray that the minds and the hearts of the congregation would be attentive. Because we all here have responsibilities. We all are going to be held accountable. So we truly and desperately need your help. Lord, we pray for those who are traveling, those who are sick. Pray to be visiting those church members with your grace, joy. And we pray for those who are here and, are, and they are not saved. We pray that through your word you'd conquer their hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. One of the overall themes, one of the themes that we can trace through all the Scriptures, and it's very clear, is the theme of warfare and battle. One dictionary says, the Bible is a book of human and divine battles. Temper Longman, he says, violence, conflict, warfare are found throughout the Bible. From Genesis 3 to Revelation 20. We read of strife and fighting. Only the first two chapters of the Bible, creation, and the last two, restoration, fall outside the long period of human conflict. But the conflict is more than human. God Himself enters history and takes the role of a warrior, fighting both human and spiritual enemies. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, we see 
God and God's people engaged in war and battle. Think about the theme of the kingdom of God. A king. Enemies. Kingdom. Fighting. And think about the war starting in the Garden of Eden. And that was the war waged against God's word. That's the primary battle against God's word. And then what happens? We have the fall. And it's amazing that God's grace in the midst of the fall, He promises. He promises the seed would come. And what would the seed do? Yes. The seed would come and wage in war and it would be a skull crusher seed. And crushing someone's head is a picture that if you go to ancient times, you see kings and their feet are over their enemy's head. And that's the picture that we have. God wages war against a world of iniquity and conquers them with a flood. Noah's story. And you can just keep tracing as he fights for Abraham. Of course, as we are looking through all the Scriptures... The major place where we see God fighting and God as a warrior in the Old Testament is the Exodus. That becomes a pattern where God fights for His people. As He delivers, as He wages war against the kingdom of Egypt, against the kingdom of darkness. And as they pass through the waters, in Exodus chapter 15, we have the first hymn there in the Scriptures. And it says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. Look at all the language war. The Lord is my strength and my song. Remember, salvation connects you victory. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. And look at that. The Lord, Yahweh, is what? A warrior. A man of war. The Lord is His name. One of the names of our God, as we study the names of God throughout the Scriptures, is Yahweh Tzavaot. The Lord of hosts. The whole terminology of salvation. What is salvation? But being saved in a war. Think about the life of Christ. Or even before, as we are moving towards Christ, the Lord Himself wages war against Israel because they despise His Word and He sends them into exile as His enemy. And then you come to the life of Christ and the whole life of Christ is a life of warfare. From the moment He's conceived, remember He's born, and then what does King Herod do? Wages war and he tries to kill that seed by killing the baby boys in Bethlehem. Think about the life of Christ. As he's been baptized, he receives the Spirit coming. And that's the empowerment for his warfare. And right after being empowered, he goes and he starts conquest. Think about healing, casting out demons. That's all language of warfare, victory. And of course, he dies. Showing that in the kingdom of God, 
Victory comes through what appears to be defeat, through death. And the New Testament closed with a picture of Jesus as the great warrior, victorious in the book of Revelation. So Paul, he continues, and Paul sees the Christian life as a war. Okay, if you look at the metaphors that the Bible used for the church, we never see the church as a theater where people come to be entertained. The church is not a place for you to come and feel comfortable entertained. The picture is always of people working, moving, struggling, serving. And Paul borrows this imagery and applies to the church as God's army. If I ask you, where in the Bible we see the church as the army of the Lord? Where do we find terminology of the church as God's outpost here on earth? And most of you would say Ephesians chapter 6. That's the, probably the most famous passage in the Bible where we hear about God's people taking up the full armor of God. And we, we see that picture of warfare there. But I would argue that there is no book in the New Testament so full of, in Paul's letters, so full of war terminology, of course, besides Revelation, but in Paul's letters as the letter to the Philippians. The letter to the Philippians is united in the theme of warfare. One scholar says, the major unified theme of Philippians is mutual military partnership for the advance of the gospel in a hostile context. And that's where the historical background is important here, because as we go back to history, we understand that Philippi, that's where the Philippians were, in Philippi, city in Macedonia, a place there, you understand that this place is inseparable from war. The history of this place is inseparable from war. The city of Philippi became a Roman colony after one of the most famous civil wars in ancient history. The Battle of Philippi. Where you had Mark Antony, or Marcus Antonius, and Octavius. And they were fighting against Brutus and Cassius, who had assassinated Julius Caesar. And Mark Antony and Octavian, they defeat Brutus and Cassius right there at Philippi. And Philippi becomes a Roman colony. And all those who fought in that fight would have land in Philippi, plus citizenship. The identity of the city was still deeply connected to its military history during the time of Paul's writing. The people in Philippi loved military stories, military language. You'd go to Philippi and all these stories were about war. Very well known for its battles. Dennis, John, uh, Dennis Johnson, he writes... Philippi was also a military town, heavily populated both by active duty troops and by retirees from service in the Roman legions. Philippi's active and retired soldiers would associate vivid combat memories 
with the terms that Paul uses to rally Christian believers to keep standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. They knew that steadfast courage and unity were crucial to victory. So you can picture Paul as this under-commanding officer. He's under Christ the Lord, and he doesn't know if he's going to die or live, and he just knows that he needs to encourage this troop in Philippi. Remember, he doesn't know if he's going to live or die, but he knows one thing. I need to encourage this troop. And he's encouraging them to keep the partnership in the gospel, advancing the gospel with military language. And there is a gigantic contrast between the Philippians and we in America, the church in America. You see, the people in Philippi, they loved, they were used to the language of war, the church being God's army, battle, bloodshed. How about the nominal church in America? Those professing to be Christians. They are offended with such terminology. Sorrowfully, for most professing Christians, Sunday mornings are supposed to be a time of fun. Relaxation. Leisure. Comfort. They want to come to church to be entertained, to feel comfortable. Are you kidding? You don't have a program for my kids. How am I going to be comfortable in this place? Are you telling me I need to take care of my kids? Oh, the service is not relaxing at all. An hour of preaching. No movies. They sing old hymns. You see, that, that's the picture that most people who profess to be Christian in America, that's the church they want. They believe that they are free to come to church when they feel like. As if soldiers had the privilege of opting out out of a battle. Oh, this Sunday I'm not coming to church. I just don't feel... I feel like doing something else this Sunday. When you understand that the service, Sunday morning service, is warfare, that makes you aware of why am I missing church this Sunday. Amen? Paul's words to the church in Ephesus, I believe, are vital for us today. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Let me ask you, who is Paul talking to here? A church. A local church. And what, what is this local church doing right now? They're assembled to worship. That's when they would read the letters, when the church would be assembled. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. When the church assembles to worship, it's wartime. And we must come ready for warfare. 
That's why I always say, how are you preparing yourself Saturday night to come to battle Sunday morning? How do you prepare yourself to come to battle Sunday morning? For most people, the idea that the church is God's army and Sunday morning is a time of holy warfare and battle, that's not cool. Kind of demanding. I always thought that the, the the military language was for kids, right? It's children Bible school. I'm in the Lord's army. I'm in the Lord's. Army. That's for little kids. And no wonder the church is so weak and pathetic. The nominal church in America, we have lost the understanding that there is a battle going on. In Philippians 1:28. Paul says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. That means that we have opponents. We have enemies. It might sound strange to some, even shocking. I don't have enemies. Then probably your life is so mediocre that you are not bothering anybody with the gospel. So my prayer is as we study this overall theme of military language in Philippians, that the Lord would help us understand the gravity and the practicality of this theme to the local church in our lives. Amen? That the Lord calls us to gather. Remember, this passage is about fighting. Warfare is not for you at your home by yourself or for people outside the local church watching and never. It's for the local church. It's when we are together as a body. Amen? So, here's the outline. We're going to be looking. The church army belongs to the Lord first. Then we're going to see the church conduct. How the church must conduct herself as the Lord's army. And then the church's reward. So, first of all, let's go to the church army belongs to the Lord. Paul has been very clear throughout the letter of the Philippians that we have a war, we are in a battle. But he's very clear that this war has been won. Then you say, but if you won the war, why do you still have battles? Right? And if you remember, World War, we had exactly the same thing. You had D-Day and V-E-Day. And between the two, do you know how long was that? Almost one year. Almost one year between the declaration of victory and actually the consummation of victory at the war. And do you know what happened in that one year? Battles. Battles. And people die. And that's exactly how the Christian life is. Christ has won the war. The victory is ours. But until the consummation, we keep fighting. Their battles. Amen? And that's all we see here. Especially in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Go there with me. Paul says, Have this pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here is the military language. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Christians in Philippi knew the names of many, many Roman commanding officers that were victorious. They knew the names of Marks Antonius, Julius Caesar, Germanicus Julius Caesar, Scipius Africanus, Lucius Cornelius, Marcus Agrippa. But Paul wants them to know one name that's above every name. Here's a commanding officer that you've got to keep in your mind. His name is above every name and every Caesar's name. And that's the name of Jesus. So he says in verse 9, look at that. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. So the Lord gives him a new name. And that's part... That was part of battles in ancient Rome. When one who was commanding the troops, when he won a battle, an important battle, what happened was he would receive a new name, a new title. And that's what we see happening here. As Jesus ascends, he receives this honorary title of Lord of Lords, King of Kings. And then Paul explains why he's receiving so that, look at that, so that the name of Jesus, his title, his position, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And the picture, if you look at Roman, if you find Roman coins, you will find pictures of different generals and Roman conquerors with the enemies on their knees proclaiming them to be Caesar. And that's the picture here. But actually it's Jesus who is being proclaimed to be Lord. And every knee bowing before Him. That's what Paul is painting here. And you see, he, should, he has received the name. He has received this power. So every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth. And the picture that Paul is painting here is that's present. That's not future. It's already taking place. He has received the name. He has received the authority. And He is reigning and ruling with power. It's already taking place. And people are already bowing to Jesus. Amen? All of us here who have been saved actually have experienced that our knees bow down before Him because of the name He received. And we see the power of Jesus in chapter 3. Look at that. But our citizenship is in heaven. Here's Paul using military language. And from which from we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power, energia, power in action. 
by the power that enables Him, not that we enable Him, but that enables Him, its presence, even to subject all things to Himself. So you see, Paul is applying here and encouraging the Philippians in relation to Christ that He is over Caesar, He is over every single human power and authority, and He's already exercising power, and He will exercise power in transforming our lowly bodies into glorious body. But here is what is important. This resurrection, the physical the glorification of our bodies is the fruit of the resurrection of our souls. It's because Jesus is already exercising His power in resurrecting sinners that will lead to the resurrection of our bodies when He comes back. Amen? And we see that in chapter 3. In chapter 3, we see the power of Christ. It says, Paul says, remember he's giving his testimony, and he says in verses 8 through 11, his, his testimony, and then he comes to verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this, meaning gaining Christ, or I am already perfect. I prefer translating that as accomplished by task. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Or another translation, He took hold of me. And that's military language. Paul is saying here, Hey, there was a time in my life that I was actually fighting against the Lord. I belong to the kingdom of darkness. I was a soldier of Satan. I was fighting against him. And then what happened? What happened? Christ what? Conquered him. Took hold of me. He hunted me down. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 9. Do you remember Paul, Saul, going as a soldier, brave, eager to persecute the church. And what happens to him? That brave soldier is conquered. He's thrown to the ground. Christ's feet is on his neck. You are conquered. You are mine now. You're going to be my soldier now. And that's exactly the language that Paul is using here. And he's not alone. In chapter 2, verse 25, we hear of other Christians as soldiers for Christ. So Paul says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier. Paul describes Epaphroditus as his fellow soldier. Sustratiotes, comrade in arms, fellow soldier. The word was a military term used to describe those who fight side by side in the army. And that's amazing because you think about Epaphroditus. His name most certainly derived from the goddess Aphroditus, who was the Roman goddess Venus. And the Caesars would trace their line, the Julian line of Paris, they would trace them to Venus. So most scholars believe that Epaphroditus was actually, he received his name in honor of Caesar. Because of Venus, Epaphrodite, the same goddess, and was the goddess leading to Julius Caesar. 
So, and you see now this man, Epaphroditus, he has changed allegiance. He's no longer a soldier of the Roman Empire serving Caesar's purpose, worshiping Caesar, but actually he is now a, a soldier of Christ, a fellow soldier with Paul. And Paul calls him a fellow soldier not just because he professed to be a Christian. He, Paul's, Paul calls him a fellow soldier because he sees in Epaphroditus the nature of a trooper. He sees in Epaphroditus the holy, holy madness that when everybody's running away to save their lives, he's running away to do what? To fight the battle. And that's why Paul calls him my fellow soldier. It's not enough to be my brother, full of affection. It's not enough to be my fellow worker, working hard. You better be my fellow soldier, one whom I can trust my life. Because it's okay to have all the affection of the world, do all the hard work of the world, but when the persecution comes, you run away to save your life and leave the church alone. No. You be a fellow soldier also. Amen? And that's Epaphroditus here. A fellow soldier. Help each other to put on the full armor. Bear each other's burden. That's what we need to be. We have a duty to be like that. And as we continue, as the Lord in charge of the church, as His army, there's another aspect. And that's to be enrolled in the records of heaven. So, for example, in chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says, Yes, I ask you, true companion. Once again, that's a military word uh, used for soldiers. They were yoke fellow. They were together in battle. And Paul is referring to the whole church here, I believe. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored better, have fought side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of what? Book of life. The book of life is the record in heaven of those who have been enrolled by God's grace to be part of His city, and therefore being part of His city, you have a duty to protect and fight. Amen? And that's very similar to chapter 3, verse 20, where Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven. How is our citizenship in heaven? Because our names are in the book of life. And where is the book of life? In heaven. Let me ask you, who put your names there? Who put your name in the book of life? The Lord Jesus. Yeah, it has to be. Did you ascend into heaven and wrote down your name? Say, hey, get out of there, God. I know you have this book. I'm going to put mine. No, no, no. And now you understand why the Lord conquers these people. Because they belong to Him. Their names are in the book of life. So He conquers. He conquers Ruth. And says, Ruth, you are mine. Your name is in my book. Then, your name is in my book. Therefore, I'm going to conquer you. You're going to become mine. That's what's taking place here. That's why he said, hey, stop, Yodia, Sintiki. 
What are you doing? Your names are in the book of life. Part of the privilege of being a member of heavenly Zion is that we fight for our country. Right? Singing, praying, preaching, proclaiming, testifying, suffering. It's all the ways we fight. All right, moving on. Second part. The church's conduct. And now there is a, a rational connection. Since our names are in the book of life, since we have a citizenship in heaven, therefore there is a proper conduct. Our conduct of life must match the city where we belong to. And that's all we see in chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says, Only let your manner of life, politomai, polis, city, and that was the obligation that every citizen had in relation to his city. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. What is to be worthy of the gospel? Does it mean that Luke, he works really hard to become worthy of the gospel? That, that's, that's the problem I have with the translation as worthy of the gospel. As if you be, make yourself worthy of something. And the idea here behind this Greek word is actually, you put in the scale and, and there is a perfect harmony. It's balancing. And that's what Paul is saying. Let your lifestyle match your citizenship in heaven. The gospel. That's what Paul is saying here. Not that you're going to work really hard in order to become worthy of the gospel somehow. No, no, no. Only let your manner of life match the gospel of Christ Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. And then the first conduct that Paul commands is to stand firm. So that I may hear concerning you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Another military word, stecco, conveys the idea of firmness, steadfastness, unflinching courage. Like that possessed by soldiers who determinedly refused to leave their posts, irrespective of how severely the battle rage. Standing firm. We have an obligation as a church, as church members, we have an obligation to stand firm. What is the opposite of standing firm? Think about what is the opposite of standing firm? Running away. Right? Retrieving, turning around, backing down, being pushed to and fro. That's the opposite of standing firm. The word stacko indicates the determination of a soldier who does not budge one inch, one scholar says, from his post. It's as if the church, all the members, with all the pressure that we are taking, we say, I'm not leaving my post. Over my dead body. That's exactly the picture that Paul is painting here. As the church in Philippi is suffering, being persecuted, he says, let your manner of life match the gospel. Jesus Christ did not run away from the pressure. You don't run away. Stand firm as a church. Remember Martin Luther? At the apex of the persecution. He's standing there at Worms. Will you recant? 
That's a picture of standing firm for the gospel. Over my dead body. I can't. I can't move. I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. Second. Conduct number two. Striving side by side. Only let your manner of life be in accordance with the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. What? Striving side by side. Standing firm and striving side by side, they are the two weapons that we need in a war. It's weapons of defense and offense. You stand firm, defending. Think about ancient armies when they went to, to battle. Do you remember how they would march into battle? They would march into battle and they would form a construction in the army where they would be shoulder by shoulder. That's standing firm. And as the enemy is rushing, coming, running towards them, they need to stand firm. And then there is this striving side by side, sunathleo, to wrestle together. We don't understand much of ancient warfare, and it's getting weaker and weaker our understanding as the time goes. But back in the day, there was a lot of wrestling in warfare. You'd have the best of the men wrestling the best of the other place. And they would have to throw each other to the ground, choke, punch. It was a wrestling match. And that's the picture that Paul has here. Striving side by side. Together, defending one another. That's the beautiful picture that Paul paints here. This word was used of Roman soldiers marching forward in lockstep for the advancement of the empire. The same word is used in chapter 4, verse 3, when Paul speaks of Yodia and Suntuhe, or Sintek. He says, yes, I ask you also, he's asking the church to help these women, they're having some issues. And look how he says about these two ladies, who have labored, who have striven. That's a better translation, it's the same Greek word that Paul used earlier. Side by side with me in the gospel. Why are they striving against each other now. Yodia, Sintiki, stop striving against each other. Remember, remember the gospel and how Jesus put you to strive side by side with each other, not against each other. That's what Paul is doing here. We are not to fight against each other. And that's so easy. So easy to take place, right? When we let the flesh take over, instead of protecting, instead of fighting with, in order to protect, we start fighting each other and against each other. And that's why you need to remember, no, the gospel, the gospel has united us. Conduct number three, not being frightened. Look at that. And not frightened, no, never, in anything by your opponents. Paul used a double negative here in the Greek. And the idea is, no, don't be fearful, never. Double negative. 
This word was used in classical Greek for horses who'd get timid or scared. And you know how dangerous it is for that beast to get scared with you on top of that. And some of you know about horses and you know how terrifying and how tragic it is when a horse is frightened. And the picture is, as you are in battle in your horses, and that horse is scared, that brings tragedy, tragedy to the whole battalion, the whole army there. And that's the picture that Paul is using here. One scholar says, Paul bypasses his customary word for fear. Remember the customary Greek word for fear? Phobos, phobia. To use this word here. He used a term that evokes a vivid scene of terror. Like spooked horses, heedlessly, stampeding, or an army breaking ranks and fleeing pell-mell in retreat. The Philippian believers must not succumb to the intimidation posed by the opponent's aggression, scattering panic or silenced by fear. The worst thing is a fearful church. A fearful church where the church members are fearful of the government, fearful of persecution, fearful of suffering, fearful of not having the world's praises. Do you know what happens to a church like that? Compromise the gospel. Once you start getting afraid of what they might do to you, you start compromising the gospel. Once you start getting fearful that people are no longer praising you, the world is no longer looking at you with eyes of adoration and sympathy. When your family members are no longer entertaining lovely thoughts towards you, do you know what you're tempted to do? Compromise your convictions of the gospel in order to please people. That's why he says, do not be fearful. No, never. There is going to be destruction to the church. Look at what he says, and not frightening anything by your opponents. Your opponents. Your adversaries. Christianity brings opponents. It doesn't matter how loving you are, how kind you are, how patient you are, how gracious you are. And we have one of the most gracious, most loving people in this church that I have ever met. Meek, gentle, kind. But as soon as you proclaim the gospel and you stand for the gospel, do you know what happens? You have enemies. Doesn't matter how loving you are, how gracious you are, how gentle you are, you will be hated. And that was Jesus' promise to his church. Take heart, the world will hate you. And remember Jesus' words. Oftentimes, that begins inside your own home. <laughs> my daughter, my son. They don't want me unless I compromise the gospel. And then you start fearing. I'm not going to be able to see my mom anymore. I'm not going to be able to be with my grandkids anymore. And you start what? Compromising your convictions. Watering down the gospel. 
because of fear. Be far away from us. Take this truth to heart. We are going to have enemies. Let me tell you, you will never be, you will never be more gentle, more kind, more loving, more truthful than Jesus. And he had a bunch of enemies. People who hated his guts and hung him on a cross of how much they hated him. So don't think by watering down the gospel, compromising your convictions, you are being loving to your kids, to your grandkids, to your parents. No. Understand this. We have opponents. Fourth, conduct number four. Being prayerful and not stressful. Chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 6, you will remember that one of the weapons that Paul gives to the church as part of the armor is prayer. So, as a church, you must be praying together. Remember, he's giving this command to the church. He's talking about congregational prayer. And sadly, some of you have a very little priority when it comes to congregational prayer. Priority in coming earlier Sunday mornings to pray. When you get back with our Wednesday nights, not showing up. We have a duty. We have a command to pray together as a church. You as a Christian, as a member of a local church, you have this duty of praying together with your church. Conduct number five. Gospel focus. The gospel of the crucified Lord must be the center of the church. Must be the focus of the local church. And we see that by the repetition of Paul. The gospel of Jesus must be the marching beat of our military campaign. Our eyes must be in Jesus. Remember Paul says, the sandals of what? The sandals. Put on the sandals. What, what, what sandals is that? The readiness of the gospel. That's what keeps us moving. The gospel. That's what keeps us marching. The gospel. Amen? And that's what we see Paul doing here. And let your manner of life be in accordance with the gospel of Christ. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I entreat Iodia, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brother, that what has happened to me has really served to advance what? My political agenda, the gospel. And that's a beautiful word here for advance. When a scholar says the term to advance, prokopen, originally denoted the making, making headway in spite of blows, and so depicted the progress amid difficulties. And Paul is painting, painting the gospel moving forward, conquering territories, in spite and in the midst of what? persecution and pain. Look, I says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, what happened to Paul? Where is he at right now? In prison. 
suffering has actually served you move the military campaign of the gospel forward. Apart from the centrality of the gospel in the life of this church, we will not be able to stand firm in one spirit. We will not be able to strive side by side. And that's why Paul keeps declaring over and over again the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That must be the center of this local church. That God the Father sent the Son to die in our place. To transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son. No longer slaves and soldiers of unrighteousness and sin, but slaves and soldiers of what? Righteousness and holiness. Amen? Once the gospel of Jesus loses the centrality in a church, do you know what happens? Do you know who becomes the center of the church? Men. Once the gospel is no longer centered in a local church, do you know who takes the place? Man takes the place. That's why Paul keeps reminding them. Finally, we need to move here. Finally, the church's reward. I like war movies, especially the old wars. And I'm not recommending here, but many of you have watched Gladiator. Right? And I'm not promoting that movie. But, there is a scene. Remember, as they are getting ready for a battle. And that's something that happened often in ancient times. Was the one who was leading, who was leading the soldiers, he would remind them and proclaim to them the rewards of victory. The rewards of victory. Oh, I can see. I can see right now going back home after this. Going to my land, my crops, my wife, my kids. And he reminds the soldiers of the rewards that they have. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's proclaiming the rewards to encourage us. And I have heard Christians say, I don't need rewards to encourage me. Oh, so you're wiser than God, right? Because God gives us rewards to encourage us. And then people, I don't need that. Oh, sorry. Good to know that you know better than the Lord. Right? How to promote eagerness and readiness. So, we see here, the first reward is the reward of victory. And that's the best reward. There's victory. Can you imagine fighting and you know that the reward is defeat? It's like, no. And that's what Paul is doing. First of all, he lets them know that We have the victory. We have the final victory. And that will take place on the day of Jesus Christ. That's a word that Paul keeps using in Philippians. The day of Christ Jesus. The day of Jesus Christ. That's when the consummation will come. Also, Paul has told us in chapter 2 that every knee shall bow. Will bow and confess that Christ is Lord. So that's promise of victory. Paul also told them that he who began the good what? You see, we say work, ergon, that's the Greek. Better translate as the good battle. The one who began the good battle will bring to completion. That's promise of victory. It's interesting that you read the ancient documents and, and, and there is 
Some documents that say that the Brutus and Cassius, they lost the battle in Philippi because they did not finish what they began. Very similar word that Paul is now using in relation to God who began a good battle and He will bring to completion. He will finish. Amen? So that's the first one. That's the most important. Also, the whole theme of joy and rejoicing that we see throughout the letter. Sometimes you ask people, what is the letter of Philippians all about? And then you have the basic, oh, it's about joy. Yeah, but you need to understand, joy is a, is, a, is a very important theme that holds the letter together, but also joy in relation to warfare. Soldiers were called to rejoice in light of the past victories and the hope of promised victories. So you read the Psalms, you have the whole language of war and rejoicing the Lord. Uh, and that, I will rejoice in the Lord of what? Of my salvation. My victory. So rejoicing throughout Philippians is all connected with the victory that we have in Christ. But here is one reward that Paul gives us. That's a very beautiful reward. He says that Christ will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. Huh. The reward of a new body. A glorified body. Isn't that amazing? And then you think, Wow, of all the things that we could receive as promise, why, as a reward, why the glorified body? Then you think about when you are suffering, when you are under persecution, under tribulation, the temptation is to do what? I don't want to suffer. I don't want to hurt my body. I don't want to go to prison. I don't want to be beaten. I don't want to be beheaded. I don't want to be burned alive. Why? Self-preservation of your body. So there is this promise that, hey, you're going to get a much better body. You're going to get a much better body as you keep fighting faithfully. Don't be scared. Don't be afraid. Paul reminds the persecuted church that this mortal body will be transformed. That's what happened to the early church. How did the early church triumph? Through, dry, through dying, persecution, suffering. The, refor- the reformers. So many of the reformers were burned alive. That's why Paul said, uh, Martin Luther says, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abides still. His kingdom is forever. This mortal body also. I'm going to receive a new one. Anyways. And that's why... Tyrannic governments, tyrannic governments, they hate Christianity with all their guts. Why? The first thing that tyrannic governments do is to persecute Christians. Because true Christians are not afraid of what they can do to our bodies. So if you are afraid of what people can do to your body, you need to re-examine your faith in the Lord, your understanding of the gospel. Because that's why the church has been triumphantly conquering in North Korea, China. What are you going to do? Kill my body? Great. Go ahead. His truth abides still. His kingdom is forever. The other reward. Second, another reward. God promises a militant peace. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then he used the military word. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard fro rail. Not fro anel, fro rail. It's a vivid military term used of a detachment of soldiers who stand guard over a city and protect it from attack. Paul paints this picture of the church united, praying, giving thanks. The church united, not being stressed, not being full of anxiety, but actually praying, bringing the petitions to God. And God sends a troop, a vast army of peace to protect that church, to protect that local body, to guard that church with His shalom, with His harmony. That's the picture that we have here. And finally, let's finish. The greatest reward of all, I believe it's the presence of God Himself, the presence of Christ. That's the greatest reward that any soldier can long for, is to be with Christ Himself. And that's what we see in chapter 3, Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I had counted as loss for the sake of Christ, indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, become like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The greatest, greatest reward is to know Christ, to partake of His sufferings, to embrace the fellowship of His suffering, and know Him in a way that we could never know in prosperity. And that's why he says in chapter 1, As it's my eager expectation and hope that we will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Reward. The greatest military reward for Paul is to be with his commanding Lord commanding chief, Jesus Christ. That's his greatest desire. And there is no way to lose. You see, that's what Paul is saying. Oh, they might kill us. And what happens if they kill us? Reward, they rush us into the presence of the king. Amen. So, we as a local church, we ought to continue striving to be the most dangerous church in Salem. We must strive to be the most dangerous church in Salem. It doesn't matter the size of this church. What matters is the havoc we are creating in the kingdom of darkness. And we must continue as we have been to be faithful to the Lord. Prioritizing the gospel. Amen. We need to keep the gospel of Jesus as the music that keeps us marching, the sandals in our feet, the prize of all prizes. There are so many other things that will come up and they try to take our attention. 
We are going to be tempted to make our church strive side by side for city council proposals, different bills, state legislations, fighting the place of abortion, vaccination laws, philosophy education, social justice, right to bear firearms. And I'm not denying the importance of these things in its proper context. But that's not the gospel that united us. You didn't come to this church because of these things. So every time you're tempted to get frustrated, walk away, remember what united us. The doctrine that united us in Christ Jesus. And say, okay, is this issue really a gospel issue? Or am I making a gospel issue when it's not a gospel issue? Because, you see, the problem is if everything is a gospel issue, then we don't have a gospel. So we need to be careful. And always be thinking, what brought us together to stand firm in the Lord, striving side by side? And brothers and sisters, look, out, look outside what's going on in our culture. Look what's going on in our culture. We have brothers in Canada being arrested for assembling together. That's just a few hours from here. Just a few hours from here. Stop dreaming with the Constitution. But we have the Constitution. Look at what's going on all around us. The Lord seems to be opening the doors for us to truly partake of Christ's suffering. And to truly stand firm and strive side by side as the opponents are throwing fiery darts against us. So we have no time for sleepy soldiers. It's no time for his news. It's time for us to stand firm. And that's my prayer, that we as a local church will continue. Will continue. That we can look at each other and say, David, Hannah, they are my fellow soldiers. I can trust my soul. I know that they're not going to run away and try to protect their lives and leave me alone. I know that they're going to be with me, praying with me, bearing my burdens. Amen. Lord, we thank You for Your Word and we pray that You'd be piercing our hearts and changing us. Forgive us, we pray, for so many times we come to church, we assemble together and You're hoping and expecting a time of relaxation and leisure when in reality You have called us to wage war. So help us. Help us to Think about one another. Think and pray for the members of this church daily. Cry out for one another. Help one another to put on the full armor. We need your help to wake us up, Lord. I want to thank you for these brothers and sisters who have been, who have been standing firm, striving side by side, who have been fellow soldiers. We pray that the gospel will continue binding our hearts together, Lord. And that our feet would be, would be wearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we keep marching together to advance the gospel. So help us. In Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen.